one of the hallmarks of HTBB is hope. HTBB is a community of hope. We are full of hope because we believe that by the power of his Holy Spirit, God the Father makes the story of Jesus the story of us. We believe that the Father, by his Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead after seeming defeat at the cross. And we believe that because of Jesus, the pattern of resurrection life in the midst of seeming defeat and death is the pattern of our own lives too. And it's because we believe all this that we pray, we spend time in God's presence, and we ask that God would act in our lives. HTBB is serious about prayer. In a couple of weeks' time, starting 30th of May, we have another week of 24-7 prayer, praying around the clock, day and night, for a week. So you could say we're ever so slightly ridiculously serious about prayer. And at every service, whether in person or online, we also invite people to come forward and to receive prayer. And you know, to pray with somebody involves two things, honesty and hope. First, we are honest. We open up. We're vulnerable about something that we're facing. And then together, we are hopeful as we pray that God will move. We pray for God to bring resurrection in the midst of death. We pray for God to bring light into dark places. We pray for healing. We pray for provision. We pray for justice. We pray for strength. We pray for transformation. And often we see amazing, even confounding answers to our prayers. And so we give thanks to God and we share testimonies of what God has done with other people, stories of honesty and hope that encourage others to be honest, to lean into this community and to hope and pray with others for their needs and challenges. Growing in faith as they do that or even coming to faith for the first time in the process. I spent a number of years working with the 24-7 prayer movement. It's an organization that supports this unbroken chain of prayer that has circled the globe for the past 20 years or so. And in the very early days, for a while, one of my jobs at 24-7 was to call churches up on the phone during the prayer weeks that they were running just to see how it was all going. And you know what? It was the best job in the world because week after week, I'd call up and I would hear the most incredible testimonies from strangers, amazing stories of people rediscovering intimacy with Jesus, people receiving amazing provision, healing, people coming to faith. Honestly, there were times it was so encouraging, I'd have paid to do it which is a good thing too, as at this point I was on a gap year scheme with 24-7. So looking back, I, I was actually paying to do it. So huge encouragements on a weekly basis. But, you know, some of the most enduringly encouraging people and testimonies I came across through the 24-7 prayer movement were not actually the amazing answers to prayer, but the people who lived honestly but hopefully with an unanswered prayer. Some of you know, might know the story of Pete and Sammy Gregg, two of the founders of 24-7 prayer. 
Not long after they founded 24-7, amid seeing so many amazing answers to prayer, Sammy was diagnosed with a huge brain tumor. And as Sammy came through the surgery, but was left with seizures and exhaustion, people around the world began to pray for healing and for recovery. And they've continued to do so for years and years. But at that time, Sammy's situation remained really serious for quite a long time. And in the years since then, as she's continued to make a steady recovery, there's been no miraculous healing in response to these prayers. And so Pete and Sammy found themselves serving a prayer movement, seeing the most incredible answers to prayer around the world, all while living with this desperate but unanswered prayer. And it's been an incredible thing to see people like Sammy and Pete carry on living with honesty, living with hope in God amid the lack of an answer to their heartfelt prayer. And if you want to hear more about Pete and Sammy's story and some other stories, I really recommend you check out the prayer course part two, which is on unanswered prayer, to hear some of the stories that surprisingly most inspired me during my time with 24-7. So hope and honesty, honesty and hope. And part of being honest about prayer is being honest about the fact that there are times in our lives when God seems less than responsive, when he even seems silent. There are certain prayers that we pray that seem to go unanswered, sometimes even for years. And I know that alongside many amazing testimonies, there will be people listening to this, tuning in today, who are living with unanswered prayers. For some of us, it's a live issue. There's something in our lives for which we are praying and waiting. For others of us, it's an old injury, something that we once prayed and looked, longed for that's in the past now, but which never turned out or came to pass as we had prayed and hoped it would. And so your faith is holding on and living in the aftermath of that. That's what I want us to explore together today. How do we live and how do we pray with hope and honesty when in some area of your life or in some prayer, the answer doesn't appear to have come? When we continue to wait for God to respond. In Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray, which I'd really recommend you read as well, he writes that living with unanswered prayer can lead to the development of what he calls a yes, but reflex, reflex in our lives and in our faith. When we worship, when we hear God's word, when we hear an amazing story of how God has moved in someone's life, when we are stepping out in faith, there's this little bit of us. And it doesn't say no to God, it's not faithlessness. It says, yes, but. Yes, God, but what about that healing I'd hoped for? Yes, God, but what about that daughter or son or mother or father I've been praying would find faith for years and years? Yes, God, but what about this desperate plea that I've been praying and re-praying? What about this area of my life in which I've been waiting and waiting for something to happen? Living with unanswered prayer can add 
a but onto every yes we say to God, especially when it's a prayer that seems to be not just the desire of our own hearts, but something fundamentally aligned with the kingdom of God and what he promises in scripture to do. And especially when in the lives of others around us or in other areas of our own lives, we still see God doing such great things. Our hearts don't say no to God, but they say yes, but. So how do we live and pray from a place of yes, but. Well, I want to turn today to a story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11. He's just been asked by his disciples to teach them to pray. And remarkably, we have Jesus's own answer to that question. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, a model for the prayer of every disciple of Jesus. But then straight away, Jesus tags on some teaching about prayer in the form of a story a story that speaks into the lives of all those who say, yes, but. And so here it is, beginning to read at verse five. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Let's pray. Lord, as we think and pray together this morning, may we know once again that you are our good father who gives us good gifts. And may we receive from you again. And would you lead us into honesty and lead us into hope. Amen. I sincerely believe that God is the God of those whose faith says yes, but he's the God of those who live with these unanswered questions about unanswered prayers. For those who pray honestly and hopefully in the midst of a seeming lack of an answer. But at first glance, this story that Jesus tells in Luke 11 might even feel discouraging rather than comforting. And that's because on the face of it, Jesus seems to be telling those who struggle with unanswered prayer that the answer is more. If only I had prayed more, if only I had got more people praying or had more faith or prayed with more passion or had more holiness in my life, then perhaps my prayer would not go unanswered. After all, Jesus says in this passage, ask and it will be given, search and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And so we ask, 
Can it be that we haven't been asking or searching or knocking enough or in the right way? Is there something more that we ought to be doing? And in a parallel story from Luke 18, Jesus tells us to always pray and not to lose heart and that he will grant justice to those who cry out continually. Well, of course, Jesus in these stories is absolutely teaching us to be persistent in prayer, to always continue to hope for God to act. But does that mean Jesus's answer to the question of unanswered prayer is simply that we need to do more? Well, I don't think it is. I think there's more going on in this story. And I want to retell this story today to help us see what's going on. Because I don't think the point of Jesus's teaching here is to answer the question of unanswered prayer. Instead, I think the point of Jesus's teaching here is actually to remove, to take off the table, a wrong answer to the question of unanswered prayer, to help us let go of one way of answering this question that we're tempted to believe when we live with unanswered prayer, but which is damaging and which is not true. So let's dive into this story of Jesus. And there are three things I think we need in order to read this story well. First of all, we need to know something about how Jesus's words land in context. Secondly, we need to know something about how Jesus uses a particular word. You'll see what I mean. And then finally, we need to know something about Jesus's storytelling. Okay, so here goes. First of all, when we place Jesus's teaching here in context, we recognize that Jesus is very much teaching here into a context and a community struggling with unanswered prayer. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we meet a woman called Anna and a man named Simeon. And Luke tells us they'd spent their entire lives praying and looking forward to the consolation of Israel, seemingly without answer. And in fact, Anna, a widow, has even moved into the temple since her husband's death, where she's prayed day and night for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I know that some of us today will feel like we've spent our entire lives looking forward and praying for something that God has yet to do. Jesus today speaks into this context of a community whose faith says, yes, but to a community who once knew who God was and who they were too, who'd seen God move in the most incredible ways in response to their prayers, a God who had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, but who now are not so sure. They've been exiled from the land previously. Now they're back in the land, but they're living under Roman rule. They call upon God, but they remain poor and powerless, unsure of their identity and their future, unsure of where they stand in relation to God or where to find him in the midst of their predicament. Anna and Simeon represent all those in Israel who are confused, who are honest 
and who yet remain hopeful as they say, yes, God, but. And in that context, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus has just taught them before we hear this story is a prayer that reawakens hope in the hearts of people struggling with unanswered prayer. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, in one sense, they're asking not just, well, how should I pray, but what should I pray for? What can we expect? What can we hope for? Where do we stand in relation to God? And in his response, Jesus teaches them to pray, your kingdom come. That profound little prayer that contains within it both a sense of honesty about that which is still undone and at the same time hope for that which is still to come. So your kingdom come. But more than that, in this prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples to call his father our father. Jesus reaches into a context of unanswered prayer and he brings an image of God who is like a father, who is there, who hears and who cares. So how Jesus teaches people to pray in the Lord's Prayer tells us something about the context but also about who God is and where they stand in relation to him. And the same is going to be true of this story that we've just read. It's going to tell us something about who God is and where we stand in relation to him. So let's jump in. The first thing to say is that Jesus's story here is actually intended to be a little bit ridiculous, even to be entertaining. In the Greek, it begins with a question that we could put we could put something like this. Who on earth would refuse to lend a loaf of bread if they knocked on the door at midnight? It's a question to which I'm tempted to respond, well, me, actually, that's who. If Dan knocked loudly on my door in the middle of the night asking for bread, the most he'd probably be handed is one of the two small children he'd woken up in the process. Sorry, Dan, but now you know. But the first century hearers of Jesus's story, they would have responded very differently to this question. And not just because they were nicer human beings than me, though that could be true. Instead, here again is where we need to fill in some first century cultural blanks that might not be obvious. Though I suspect they might be just a little bit more familiar in our Malaysian context than in some Western settings. So the question is, who on earth would refuse to lend a loaf of bread if they knocked on the door at midnight? You see, in the first century, the sense of responsibility and hospitality towards friends and neighbors and travelers was such that Jesus's listeners would have heard this question and they would have chuckled to themselves and said, no one, of course. Yes, the one who asks is a bit silly. He's been caught out by his own bad planning, and perhaps he's even asking a little pushily, but Jesus says, even if the two weren't friends, the one would get up and give the other bread. And with that element of responsibility and hospitality in place, now here's where we have to tackle how Jesus uses a single word in this story to go a bit further. Because there's this little Greek word that is used in this story, an idea. And it only appears once in the entire New Testament. And most of the time, we translate it into English as 
persistence. Persistence. Because of his persistence, the man will get up and give him what he needs. Which makes it sound, of course, like the person knocking on the door gets the answer they need just because they won't stop. But here's the thing. The word an idea never means persistence when we find it used outside of the New Testament. Actually, it means something more like audaciousness or shamelessness, which also brings it into line with the culture of hospitality that we've just noted is the context of this story. Shamelessness. It means, on the one hand, daring to do something no matter how it looks to others, and it means, on the other hand, doing something because the alternative would be shameful. And if we translate it that way, as shamelessness, as I think we should, then that really changes how we read this story, doesn't it? Jesus tells a funny story about a neighbour having his door hammered down in the middle of the night, and everyone knows that the neighbour is going to get up in the end and give him the bread, not just because it's difficult for him to roll over and go back to sleep, but because to not do so would be shameless. It would be dishonourable in this context of hospitality not to help out a neighbour and not to provide hospitality to a traveller in this way, no matter the inconvenience. So there's a little bit about the context that helps us begin to read this story a little differently. And so Jesus tells this story and then at the conclusion he says, ask, knock, seek. If you knock, then the door will be opened to you. But still, if we stop there, the story is still painting a pretty odd picture of prayer, isn't it? I mean, if we're the ones doing the knocking, doesn't that make God a sleepy, reluctant neighbour who can't really be bothered, but whose hand is forced by a cultural bind or for the sake of his own reputation or for the sake of honour? And can that really be what Jesus who invites us to call God Father, means? Well, again, I don't think so. But this is exactly how we are often tempted to think in the face of unanswered prayer. You see, here is where we need to go uh, a little bit further and to know something about Jesus's storytelling in order to get the point. Because the clue here actually comes after the story, where Jesus says these words, how much more. How much more will the heavenly father give? That's key to the whole story because what's going on here is a common trick in Jewish storytelling called kal wahoma, which means light to heavy. Kal wahoma, which means from the lesser to the greater. And how this little storytelling technique works is that you begin with something small and then you suddenly switch it up to something much, much bigger that is totally different in order to dramatically make your point. And what you're saying here is, uh, if it's not true here with this little example, then how much more will it not be remotely true there? If even this sleepy neighbor will not fail to respond to such a request, how much more will this not be true of God? 
And when we bear this in mind, we begin to see that Jesus is not saying that God is a little bit like a reluctant neighbor who has to answer in the end because of some kind of bind. Jesus is saying precisely the opposite. Of course, God, your father, is not anything like a sleepy, reluctant neighbor. He doesn't sleep. He's not reluctant. He doesn't respond because he has to. We've moved right the way to the other end of the spectrum now. We flipped the story on its head. And so, a story that seems to be telling us that we need to do more or to do it differently in order to obtain answers isn't really saying that at all. Jesus in this story, he isn't explaining why our prayer goes unanswered. He's clearing away some common, tempting, but damaging and wrong explanations that we give to ourselves and one another. Explanations of why our prayers go unanswered. Explanations that some of us here today will be carrying, that we'll be holding and that will be holding us back from honesty and hope. Explanations that will be sustaining that yes, but reflex in our lives. The ones that say that God is not interested or simply not there. And the ones that say it's because you're not doing it right or you're not doing it enough or you're not asking properly. Now, believe me, I know that doesn't settle the questions we have as we live with prayers that go unanswered. We all wish Jesus would say more here. I know I do, as I think about the unanswered prayers of my life. But hearing Jesus take away these wrong answers might just give us some hope this, today. God is our Father. How much more does he hear and care? What Jesus is really doing in this story is lifting prayer out of the realm of mechanics and transactions and back into the realms of relationship. Remember that also in the first century, towns and cities were littered with temples to all kinds of Greek and Roman gods. And prayer for the followers of those gods was really all about contacting and contracting divine power. Get the name right, get the words right, get the right outcome. And what Jesus is saying here is that God and prayer to this God is nothing like that. And that is good news. He's saying that prayer is not a matter of technique, not about what God has to do if we do this. Instead, prayer is a matter of relationship. And this is why it is so important that Luke 11 both begins and also ends with the idea of God being our Father. We've seen at the start, when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he says to call his Father, our Father. And then at the end, he says, fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. And again, we get a touch of humor from Jesus when he says, the child who asks for a fish is not gonna receive a snake. The child who asks for an egg is never gonna receive a scorpion. Jesus is saying here, look, I know how you feel. I know it's hard, but please know that that is not what God is like. That is not what's going on 
here. Don't conclude on the basis of your unanswered prayer that God is cheating you or not favorable towards you. He says that the one who asks for an egg will never receive a scorpion. He doesn't say that the one who asks for an egg will always get an egg, but he reminds us that God is a good father and he removes an answer to unanswered prayer that we are tempted to give. And so Jesus, in this story, he starts with that yes, but reflex. And by the end, he leaves us in Luke 11 with another kind of yes, but reflex. On the one hand, Jesus speaks into a context uh, that he calls to be honest about the yes, but faith that we have. Yes, God, but I don't understand. Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. But then on the other hand, Jesus also calls us to move to a place of hope that says, yes, but. Yes, I honestly don't understand why God doesn't answer this prayer and it hurts. Yes, this is hard, but I know that he is a good father. I know that he loves me. I know that I can be honest with him and with my fellow Christians and I know that in him, there is always hope. I trust him. And perhaps the most powerful thing about Jesus's message here ultimately is that it's not just a message because this is not just the kind of prayer Jesus taught, it's the kind of prayer Jesus lived. Jesus himself wrestled with unanswered prayer as he approached his, approached his arrest and crucifixion. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays to God and he prays four things. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And what I'd love us to do today is to pray through those words of Jesus as we close, to find our own honesty and to find our own hope in him. You might like to hold out your hands. It's a posture of honesty and openness, and it's a posture of hope. As we pray, come Holy Spirit, draw near to us, fill us and minister to us now. Jesus prays, Abba, Father, in the garden of Gethsemane, it's the only time that we hear Jesus use that word, Abba. In the place of suffering, without answers, Jesus remembers who God is. And for some of us hearing this, living with unanswered prayer, the call today is to remember that we don't understand what's going on. He is our Father. He hears, he cares, and he loves us. And we let those false impressions of God those false explanations of why our prayer has gone unanswered fall away now. And Jesus prays, for you all things are possible. He clings to the power of God in the face of his situation. And we know that this power does not save Jesus from death, though it will raise him from the dead. 
the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, experiences unanswered prayer. He knows what it's like. He doesn't just teach about it, he lives it. For some of us today, living with unanswered prayer, the call is to remember God's power. For you, all things are possible. And perhaps to deliberately call to mind the things that God has done before in our lives, the answers to our prayers that we have known. And Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. Jesus prays for what he wants in that moment in Gethsemane. Even the Son of God flinches in prayer from what he's called to do. He dares to ask that it might be otherwise. And for some of us today, living with unanswered prayer, the call is to go on praying where perhaps our prayers have dried up. And the call is to pray honestly, not to, to pray what we, we think we ought to pray, but to pray for what we want, to pray for what our heart's desire is. God may change us as we pray. He may, he may reshape our desires. He may redirect our path. But Jesus teaches us to ask. And then finally, Jesus prays, yet not what I want, but what you want. Having called God Father, recalled God's power, and cried out with honesty, now and only now, Jesus is able to surrender to God's wisdom. In prayer, Jesus does not receive an answer, or at least not the one he was expecting. But we know that what he endured was for salvation. And we know that he was raised from the dead. And we know that resurrection out of death is our story too, because it's the story of Jesus. And for some of us here today, I believe God would say, when we're in a valley, it's not the time to speculate about God's will or the lessons he, he might want us to learn. We leave that to one side. It's time to go on trusting and to go on asking as we trust in God, our Father. Amen. And so now we return to worship. And as we do that, I'd really encourage you to um, connect with one of our prayer pastors who are ready to pray with you. Yeah.